We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, May 16th, 2022, as we bring you a new episode. It's going to be a very busy week for the White Sox. Weather permitting, they will have eight games this week starting with five games in four days against the Kansas City Royals, and then heading to the Bronx to face the New York Yankees. Speaking of the Yankees, they just won three out of four against the White Sox this past weekend at Guarantee Rate Field, outscoring the White Sox 32-15 to in four games. Despite 11 strikeouts from Dylan Cease, the Yankees still mustered multiple home runs off him, and a total of six runs. They gave Joe Kelly fits. They scored off Liam Hendricks. Poor Vince Velasquez and Tanner Banks were beat up. So, of course, it was Dallas Keuchel who kept the Yankees at bay. Of course. Pitching is not the biggest problem for the White Sox. It's still the offense. We'll discuss the lack of firepower from the White Sox bats in a moment. Hopefully, they wake up when they arrive in Kansas City, as we'll preview that series and answer your questions from our Patreon supporters in P.O. Sox. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. What did you learn about the White Sox in this series against the Yankees? Well, I'd like to think that we learned that uh, Vince Velasquez is not Lucas Giolito. <laughs> He's not going to be uh, a, a stopper. So as nice as his last two starts were, like he looked a little bit exposed. Um, on the other hand, Dallas Keuchel surprised. So maybe, you know, when it comes to trying to judge how this team would look with its rotation perfectly lined up, it can only teach so much because baseball is weird like that. But yeah, we, we talked about the series being a measuring stick and we are not alone because actually Rick Hahn was asked about it before the series. And he said that, uh, you know, he would not want to be used as a measuring stick. Um, his actual quote was, look, man, if you're saying how we do in a four game set in May against the Yankees is a measuring stick, you know, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, of course he circles back and says like, uh, um, sure, it's maybe nice to get a little snapshot for where you sit at a given point in the season, but in the end, it's where you end up at all that really matters. <laughs> just like, yeah, it is a snapshot. Duh. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, your team's going to change. People are going to get hurt. People are going to come back. Like you, you can't apply a series in May to October. It's, it, it, it seemed to me like, you know, missing the point, you know, being like just a little bit uh, um, pedantic for the sake of winning an argument or, or just being, you know, technically correct, which is the best form of correct. But it did, you know, I, I think in Han's case, it doesn't benefit him to call it a measuring stick because if they win, good, but it also doesn't really apply to October. It's not like there's no October points in winning in May. And if they lose, then you get the whole like, well, I guess they don't measure up to the Yankees after all. So it's in his interest to not use it as a measuring stick. But it did show that the uh, Yankees offense is... You know, they, they do make a pitcher work harder than the White Sox offense does. And they 
produce enough, whether it's when it comes to the offense, whether it comes to like the pitching staff being deep to where like they can get by with some, some mistakes. You know, the Yankees committed four errors and the White Sox committed none this series, which I thought was interesting. Like we, mm-hmm. we saw, you know, coming into the series that Tim Anderson alone had committed more uh, errors than the Yankees did. And uh, you know, Yankees had the best run prevention unit in the league. And, you know, that still might be true. You know, maybe this is a bit of regression, some bad luck creeping in to even some numbers out. But the Yankees played not great defense. They ran the bases particularly poorly in one high leverage instance. They made mistakes, and yet they still took three out of four. Whereas the White Sox sometimes have to play perfect ball to skate by with a a two-run win. So I think, you know, we saw that the Yankees have maybe an extra layer of depth of danger of of just being able to either beat a team by scoring or by holding scoring that I think the White Sox don't yet have. Back to Rick Hahn's quote. I have a philosophical question for you. Okay. How do you know you are getting better in anything? <laughs> like as a curling coach or as a writer or as a podcaster or as a new dad? How, how do you know you're getting better at what you are doing? Uh, it, it, doing the job's its own reward. I guess that, that's what he's saying. <laughs> but yeah, just, you know, and that's a good point. Like in, in terms of, uh, you know, we talked about last year, how over the second half of the season, because of that big uh, lead they had in the AL Central, that they just didn't mm-hmm. really have their medal tested. And any kind of bad series you could write off as saying like, well, they didn't have this or they, this guy wasn't healthy or it was just one bad inning or they're trying this guy out for this role or they're, you know, just there are a lot of excuses that could be made. And, and a lot of those excuses were valid, especially when it came to like load management and stuff and trying to keep guys as healthy as possible. But just we didn't really know how this team would react when uh, a good team pushed it up against the wall. And we saw that with the Astros and, they did have a little bit of fight in them in game three. Like they were able to just, you know, kick out of one pin, but uh, the Astros had another finishing move and they couldn't, you know, get out of that one. So I think this is where I, I you know, we talked about in, in, in the podcast leading up to this, talking about just, you know, what does it mean if they split a series, they win a series that they get swept and just like, you know, I said they could lose three out of four in a way that's respectable. And this was, this stopped short of respectable, I think, when it came to like feeling encouraged about just, you know, how this team might look against a field in October where all these teams have multiple ways to beat you. Yeah. And I was in the Lawrence Holmes show on Friday on 670 The Score, which promotional Jim and I have a weekly segment with Lawrence Holmes. It'll be Jim's turn this upcoming Friday. And what I mentioned that segment, Jim, because I was paying attention to the Houston Astros and Minnesota Twins series. And, and that happened last week. And the Astros simply outclassed the Minnesota Twins. Mm-hmm. The Minnesota Twins starters in that series against the Astros only pitched 10 innings. They threw 240 pitches. They were averaging <laughs> 24 pitches per inning because the Astros offense is just like the Yankees offense. They know what pitches they can drive. They have tremendous power, but they are tremendously patient and they force you to work and work, and work, and it stresses out the pitching staff. And unless you have a similar offense that does the same thing to their pitching staff, you're at a disadvantage because asking your pitching staff, everyone in your pitching staff, to be perfect is a tall order. I mean, they embarrass Joe Kelly. Like, Mm -hmm. my confidence in Joe Kelly is shaken. It shouldn't be. He's only made three appearances this season coming off injury, but I'm worried about Joe Kelly, just like I'm worried about Lance Lynn facing the Houston Astros. It's just like, wow, they have his number and they make him look really bad. You know, Liam Hendricks, unfortunately, could not pull out the five out save. That's a tall order for him to do. And Dylan C struck out 11 batters, still gave up six runs. Michael Kopech had a one hitter going against the Yankees through six innings. That is tremendous, especially how good this offense is. He still gave up three runs because he walked two runs in and he threw a wild pitch. They just stress out your pitching staff so much that it's really up to your offense to match that type of output and that efficiency and that firepower. And the series like this one against the Yankees and the Dodgers at home June 7th through the 9th and going to Houston June 17th through the 19th. 
for me, will demonstrate what this White Sox team is lacking to be considered a true World Series contender. Because those three, I believe, are World Series contenders. The White Sox don't face the New York Mets. Those are the four teams, as of right now, on May 16th, that I am very certain are World Series contenders. There's still a lot of time left between now and October, but the same rule applies with the contenders. The White Sox, they're hurt. Okay, everyone is hurt. The White Sox, we got to see when they're at full, you know, 100% health and full power. Okay, the other teams can say that. Well, the White Sox can make moves at the deadline. They will be making moves at the deadline, and they don't have the worst farm system in baseball. That's the White Sox. They have prospects, good prospects that they could deal and add significant talent to their roster. I know those teams are going to be in there, going to be there in October, Jim, and I believe the White Sox will be as well. But again, as we speak, the White Sox are 16 and 17. They're three games back of the Twins. Not only did they look outclassed against the New York Yankees, they're still four and ten against the American League Central. Mm-hmm. If they were at five hundred and seven and seven, not great, but they would be nineteen and fourteen, and that paints a total different picture of where they are now. What we are discussing. So what I've learned is that even though like the struggles against the Central might be real, because they don't even match up against the best teams in the American League like the New York Yankees. And I just don't have a lot of confidence for this team going into next weekend into the Bronx. Like I'm 75% certain they're going to get swept. I am very worried about that road trip going to Toronto and Tampa Bay, even though the Blue Jays are scuffling a little bit right now. I don't know what to make of that midweek home series against the Dodgers because the Phillies gave the Dodgers fits this past weekend. And then the series at Houston could be embarrassing, even with Lance Lynn and Eloy Jimenez returning. Like, there's a lot that needs to be fixed for the White Sox between now and October to consider them a true World Series contender. And honestly, that was our expectations before the season. And I feel like I have to scale those expectations back, Jim, because after this weekend, there's a lot that needs to change for this White Sox team to be considered a true world series or bust unit looking at the box score on sunday's game and after nestor uh cortez held them to three hits i think half of the 10 players who were in the lineup or appeared uh in the batter's box uh for the white Sox were hitting under 200 so i think that's a case where like you know part of this is colored by just how dead offenses are on the league and, you know, making the White Sox more susceptible to just, you know, I, I guess it's kind of like, um, you know, it exacerbates their flaws, kind of like hitting, uh, you know, hitting a slice or a hook into the wind, the way the wind just generates resistance makes the uh, slice or hook worse. And that's kind of what it looks like right now, just, you know, with the way they hit ground balls and the way they aren't getting the most out of the good fly balls they hit just like, well, that makes the ground balls more costly. Just when they're, you know, that makes their dead at bats even deader because they're not getting the most out of their, the, you know, the balls that they hit. Well, <laughs> I think that's what I look at and say, you know, is this going to be corrected? Is this going to be, you know, incumbent on the white Sox to do it? Or is this going to be like a full season thing to where just, they are built for the wrong ball. And, you know, are they not talented? Are they not diverse enough in terms of, Looks, uh, lineup modularity, uh, skill set, speed, just, you know, getting on base, generating scoring chances inning after inning to where, you know, the quick strike is taken away from them and they just don't really have a whole lot else. Yeah, after Sunday's game, LaRusa mentioned that he likes that the team is aggressive, but they need to be more disciplined. And yeah, like the Yankees, that's how they could score three runs with one hit through six innings because they are incredibly disciplined. If Michael Kopech doesn't want to throw strikes, that's fine. Everyone in that lineup is willing to take their walk. And the best offenses, even with the dead baseball, the best offenses in baseball are the most disciplined right now. They're the ones that are walking the most. Yeah, it's just generating uh, uh, scoring chances in bulk. Yeah, because I'm looking at the team OPS. So far through 2022. And the White Sox ranked 26th in baseball with a 636 team OPS. As a team, they're hitting 227 with a 283 on base percentage and slugging 353. They're slugging 353 as a team. Now, there's a lot of teams in baseball where their team slugging percentage 
is in the threes. But like the New York Yankees, they have a team on base percentage of 323 compared to the White Sox. Which is still so... That used to be league average. That used to be, but it's 40 points better than the White Sox. Yeah. So one thing that definitely needs to change from now into the end of the season, and this will also assist the White Sox in winning the American League Central, they just got to find ways to get on base. Like the... Well, the baseball's dead. We got to stop with that excuse. We're 33 games into the season. Everyone is dealing with this baseball. So you better start making adjustments now instead of waiting when it's too late and hoping that the super bouncy ball is going to be inserted mid-season. You just have to figure out a way to continue to put runners on base and open up those opportunities. The Yankees do that incredibly well. And the White Sox learned that lesson this weekend, giving up 32 runs. Yeah, I'm looking at just the, the you know, we, we know about the walk rate, but I hadn't seen the number of walks, just the number of walks the White Sox had drawn. They're dead last with 74. Red Sox are second last with 86. So, so there's a 12-walk difference. That is that a week? Do the White Sox get 12 walks in a week? Yeah, it's kind of, I would say, yeah, just, yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's about a week, yeah. I'm thinking like, yeah, two walks a game is probably... Um, aspirational at some point, depending on the staffs they're facing. But good staffs, yeah, two walks is aspirational. This wasn't the problem last year. There was a point to start last year, Jim, where the White Sox had a 10% walk rate. Yep. This is completely different from last year. And we got a couple questions from our Patreon supporters. One question from Rob, and we mentioned the 33 games. And Rob, I think this is a good question to answer now wrote to us, are 33 games enough of a sample size to say this team might win the American League Central, but its glaring flaws are obvious, generally not fixable, and will prevent any serious bid for a World Series title? Because that's where I'm at. And that's what Rob wrote to us. I think it's healthy for the White Sox front office to think that way. Like just, you know, if you take the standard... uh, idea of breaking the season into quarters in the first 40 games you learn what you have next 40 games you try to get what you don't have and then the you know the rest second half of the season let it play out you know it's a little bit more than half when you know, when you factor in the trade deadline but that's just the general idea uh maybe you can do a 50 50 and 62 for just the idea of you know taking stock and then trying to augment that stock and i think right now the white Sox should be taking this seriously like they they you know, when you have Frank Medikito saying that they need to, uh, you know, when they don't take their walks or when they don't take their, di- you know, show their discipline, they're playing into uh, the opponent's hands. And sure, that's that's true. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of people wanting to have Frank Medikito fired and sure, you know, fire him. But also, I have no idea what a hitting coach does. I've been doing this for, uh, you know, since 2006. And, you know, I've seen hitting coaches come and go. And just at some point, I just lost the ability to just know, like, you have some sense you can have some feathers in the cap but when it comes to like helping impatient hitters grow patient like it doesn't seem like a hitting coach thing that seems like a organizational you know i think they're trying to do that at the lower levels um you know with with swing coaches and with uh, just you know kind of doing a more data-based approach into just trying to um learn what swings do damage on what pitches and try to teach through i guess you know what kind of swings and contact get rewarded, but right now they don't have that ability. So by the time they get to Menachino, um, there's not much he can do when it comes to like trying to instill play discipline ac- across the entire, uh, you know, across, across the entire roster. So that, that's why I think like, you know, sure fire him, but I just, it, it doesn't seem like at this point, uh, 33 games into a season that firing him makes a big difference just because we've seen, you know, a number of hitting coaches come and go and it doesn't seem to, matter much i think the data is the data he seems like he's receptive to data um you know so he's not like saying like if you were swatting reports out of a hands of a you know computer pro, uh, a programmer saying like here's here's what uh uh you know our our team has uh, generated for this upcoming series and he says no we use the eye test like sure but you know he's not like that no no hitting coaches like that they take the data that they get it's just more a matter of this this is trying to teach old dogs or established dogs, new tricks. And I think it takes more of a village approach in order to actually put a dent in team-wide OBP across the board. So that's why I think like, yeah, I can try to change 
swing plane launch angle. I imagine he's doing that already. He's voiced it. So, you know, maybe it takes somebody else, but we've seen how many other somebody else's uh, over the past several years between, you know, the hitting coach and assistant hitting coach. And it doesn't really seem to make a dent. It doesn't. And this leads to the question from Joe. And Joe wrote to us, well, this week sucks. Out of Rick Hahn, Tony Russa, and the players themselves, who gets the most blame for this season's start so far? And where do you where do you want to start here, breaking these three down? You want to start with Rick Hahn and his offseason moves not really panning out so far? Because mm-hmm. uh, Kendall Graven, I'll say this, Kendall Graven looks good. And that's surprising yeah. me. I was not ecstatic when they signed Graveman to start their off season. I felt that was more of a finishing move than a starting move. And I was going to be patient to see how the rest of the off season went to see if that move would look better. And it wasn't looking better until Craig Kimbrell gets traded on April 1st. But so far on May 16th, Kendall Graveman has looked the best out of the off season moves. Vince Velasquez has had moments, mm-hmm. but you got Joe Kelly, you got Josh Harrison, you got AJ Pollock and Lurie Garcia. Am I missing anyone from the offseason moves? Yeah, Joe Kelly, Graveman, Garcia. Yeah, so like, yeah, that. Oh, Reese McGuire. Reese McGuire. Yes. So there you go. So you have yeah. those seven <laughs> players, and that's your that's your offseason for the White Sox. Yeah, it's a uh, when it, the the thing that you know didn't enamor me about the offseason is that it seemed like. You know, when you sign Graveman, then you sign Kelly, and you sign Garcia, and then you sign Harrison, it's like you're saying, like, well, what if that move sucked? <laughs> Just like, well, what if Graveman doesn't pan out? Well, we have Kelly. Like, well, what if Garcia doesn't pan out? We have Harrison. Like, why did you sign the guys in the first place if the next signing, if you have to make a signing to bolster it? And I, I don't think that was his thought process necessarily, but looking at it externally, like, I, I didn't mind Garcia or Harrison. I didn't mind Graveman or Kelly, but both of them. And then especially Kelly being hurt. That I didn't like Kelly being hurt because it gave me Kelvin Herrera vibes. Uh, but it just, it struck me as like, what, that's like the worst, you know, it's the worst way to be redundant. You know, like I would say like more bats than spots. I've seen like, you know, when it comes to like, say, you know, trying to have an outfield that crowds like say Andrew Vaughn completely out of the picture. That's useful. That's a case where like, okay, that's, that's um that's redundancy, but it's redundancy that shoves a guy down to triple A. It's a redundancy that if somebody gets hurt, he can uh you know groom somebody to step into a role and, and have it be thoughtful and considered. And uh the redundancy in this case was for the least well, I, I shouldn't say least valuable positions, because bullpen in general, like as a whole, is valuable. But just when it came it comes to like the like we saw, they they acquired Craig Kimbrell, Ryan Tapera last year for the offseason or for the postseason. They could not make a difference in the games. Uh, just the games did not get to them in the shape that they needed to be in order for C- Craig Kimbrell to make a difference or for Ryan Tapera to really make a difference. So, great. So, you double up on Graveman and Kelly, which is great for protecting leads, but who's going to get them the leads? You know, who, who's new that's going to get them the leads? Who, you know... Uh, you can, you can argue that like Vaughn's going to be better. Robert's going to be better. Mankata hopefully is better. You know, just you know, along the roster thinking like, you know, Aloy is going to be better. It just that, you know, they have the in-house improvements in hands, but none of the moves made helped the first six innings to make it better for that killer bullpen to do its job. And now you have a situation where like, uh, you know, the killer bullpen is necessary for protecting all leads and all ties because the leads are not uh, flowing in, in the first half of the game. So if they somehow get to the second half of the game in a tie game, you need Kendall Graveman, who is just used to protect a narrow lead. And it just, it's a trickle down. So I think, you know, Tony La Russa has his, uh, you know, faults and such, you know, but I'm, I'm looking at what AJ Hinch is doing in Detroit. <laughs> just like, well, he doesn't seem to be a miracle worker uh, at some hand uh, or at some point, you just have to deal with the talent you have on hand. And right now the talent on hand is not scintillating for the white Sox. So it does place the emphasis uh, or heightened importance on the moves Tony La Russa makes or doesn't make. And when he doesn't make a move, like say in the uh, Thursday game where he had a seven to seven game and, and didn't really rush in to take Joe Kelly out. And actually, you know, as you told uh, Lawrence Holmes, like Tanner Banks against a righty instead of Tanner Banks, one batter earlier against the lefty. Like that was a mistake, but also like, why wasn't Graveman warming? It's because he didn't want to chase a win 
uh, tied at seven when there are three more games and so many games down the line where Graven might be more important. And sure enough, there was a game where he could go too. And he did, and the White Sox won the game. So it did validate some of his uh, conservative attitude towards uh, bullpen workloads. But I think if you're looking at the manager's job and decision-making this closely in May, it does point to a depth chart problem because I think, you know, uh, normally uh, White Sox fans would understand that it's a long season, but when you're, you know, below 500 in May and this team was supposed to uh, win the AL Central with relative ease, it does uh, make everybody a bit more jumpy. And then, yeah, the players are failing too, but I think the players are, Players are partially what they are. And I think more needed to be done in the offseason to protect them, you know, the, the incumbents from what they are and, and, and their weaknesses. And as we're seeing, that really wasn't done. For Tony La Russa and with the bullpen right now, remember, Jim, it's nice to get a little snapshot for where you sit at any given point in the season. Mm-hmm. Well, at this point in the season, poor Tony La Russa and poor the, that bullpen, they're taxed. We, we talked about this at the beginning of the season. What is a concern? The concern is, is that with the starting pitchers ramping up, you will see bullpens be taxed early. And we're going to have to see these type of IL stints in which you're bringing in new guys or guys on the 40-man roster to come in and just help you out some weeks. The White Sox may need to send some guys, whether they got a little nagging injury or a phantom IL, if they're just exhausted, and bring up some fresh arms somewhere from the 40-man roster <laughs> uh, to, to Charlotte get through bullpen, this week. Though. That Charlotte yeah. bullpen, though, is is pretty brutal. And and whose fault is that? That is Rick Hahn's fault. He is the general manager. He is the one to, supposed to be not only building a 40-man roster, but an entire farm system. So if you don't, got, if you don't have the internal depth to give the guys a break, like throughout this week, Jim, my gosh, the White Sox starting pitching has to be on point against the Royals. We'll talk more about this uh, later in the podcast as we preview that series. They, they Dylan Cease cannot duplicate what he did against the Yankees mm-hmm. and only go four. Like, the starters have to go five. They have to go five, even if they give up six runs in the second inning. I'm sorry. You got to eat it. Keep pitching because the bullpen is just taxed already in mid-May and you don't have reinforcements or dependable reinforcements to come up. Guys that are interesting that throw 97 miles per hour, the White Sox are even lacking in that department to bring up, to give Graveman or Ruiz or Foster or Kelly a break. You you just don't have those guys right now. Well, the thing that strikes me is that like Matt Foster, Jose Ruiz, relative revelations this yes. year. Just we didn't think they would be that good. They you didn't think that they would be you know the Gallo Homer aside. Like you know they've been pretty good in medium leverage and answered some uh, calls that were surprising because of the workload you mentioned. But even they're necessary. That's I think what's you know that points to just these so many close games is that sure uh, Graveman gets a day off and, and Hendricks gets a day off, but you know that place the emphasis on guys like Foster and Ruiz who are already used to to try to keep yesterday's narrow score uh, deficit or lead intact. So just, you know, everybody is being pressured, whether they're, you know, high leverage guys or uh, medium leverage guys, even like Ryan Burr has to occasionally step up into such situations. So, uh, you know, we, we had a question in P.O. Sox talking about like, are the White Sox the worst at having their good hitting days line up with their good pitching days to order, you know, to, to provide some order to the bullpen, to provide some relief for the staff and have some classic garbage time opportunities. And yeah, they, they kind of are by, by certain metrics. Like they've, uh, they've, they've had fewer games uh, decided by, uh, you know, blowout scores, which is five or more runs than anybody else. Even the Reds have more than the White Sox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the Reds have had more blowout victories than the White Sox. So it, it is, you know, mathematically correct that like that, that's probably the best measurement, which team has had the most blowout wins or even like the blowout losses, like which team has had like it's no shows show up with its pitching staff doing nothing to where at least you don't chase these narrow deficits and try to squeeze a win out of it. And they're not even great at that because <laughs> they sometimes show a little life late or, you know, they, they, you know, like in the Vince Velasquez start, like, uh, or, or Michael Kopech in a second inning, like has a rough inning, but 
balances out and keeps the team in the game-ish. Uh, I'd say, you know, Kopech kept him in the game. Velasquez kept him in the game-ish. Like a crooked number could have changed the Yankees' plans and, and a little late in doing so. But it's, uh, yeah, it's really rough just exactly how they've gone about just helping out their bullpen because they built this bullpen, but that requires some, you know, just some normalcy in terms of distribution of scores and cushions and margins in order to make sure that you're not, you know, you're not having six or seven games go by over the first two months of the season where Kendall Graven could have made a difference, but wasn't able to because of the previous days or previous weeks workload. And going to the players, all this boils down to is the White Sox offense is underachieving. Mm -hmm. And, And what's sad about that is that Tim Anderson is hitting. He's hitting 336 with a 368 on base percentage, slugging 504. Tim Anderson's doing great. Luis Robert has bounced back very nicely. His season slash line is now 304, 343 on base percentage, slugging 451. Andrew Vaughn has an OPS of 846. He's slugging over 500. For White Sox players that have played at least 10 games this season, so this excludes Yohan Makata, only four of them, Jim, have an OPS better than 700. I listed three of them. Can you guess who the fourth is? Hmm. What kind of sample size are we talking about? At least 10 games played. 10 games played. Hmm. Mendick? It is Danny Mendick. <laughs> I was trying to think. Like I, said, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about the box score. Like, who didn't appear in the box score? Because I saw all the OPSs in the box score. And saw, like, Larry? Nope. Harrison? No. Just, I was kind of going through it. Like, it <laughs> only leaves Mendick. one man. And he doesn't play anymore. I mean, Gavin Sheets has got a 699 yes. OPS. Yeah, Sheets is Sheets close. Is yeah. close. I, I, he's had he had a good week. He had a couple of home runs. I didn't realize he's. I thought he's like it's still in the mid six hundred. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. Thought. Sheets hit three home runs this week, so that's a good sign to see. But Jose Abreu is hitting one ninety seven with a two seventy two on base percentage, and he's slugging three eleven, a three eleven slugging percentage from Jose Abreu in thirty two games. Can't have it. Yasmani Grandal who has caught fewer innings than Reese McGuire this season, is hitting 165 with a 287 on base percentage and slugging 216. Yasmani Grandal only has three extra base hits this season. One home run and two doubles. Mm-hmm. Looking at the offense and not getting another impact bat during the offseason, I imagine Rick Hahn looked at his lineup like we did and say, there's a lot of potential here. And you're looking at Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets batting the bottom third of the order. Well, after 33 games, the ones that should be hitting sixth and seventh in the lineup is Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal. Like, you need to stack your four best hitters. And your four best hitters right now are Tim Anderson, Yoan Makata, Luis Robert, and Andrew Vaughn, Jim. Like, the days of automatically Mm -hmm. putting Jose Abreu third or fourth in the lineup are over until he starts having a slugging percentage that starts with a four. And that may require a very hot 32-game stretch for Jose Abreu to dig himself out of this hole. It's only 33 games, Jim. But he is Jose Abreu is making the decision for this upcoming offseason a really easy one for the White Sox of whether or not to sign him to a third contract and bring him back. And right now that answer is no. And it's... You could say, well, look at his hard hit data. I love that stuff. We reference it all the time in this show. I pay attention to the exit velocity. Jose Abreu's swing sucks. It looks slow. His hands are not out in front. He hit the ball in the air this series, but they were weak pop-ups. He is he has not been driving the ball like he had at the beginning part of this season. And if he does hit the ball hard, it's on the ground. Like, I think he's got like a 10% line drive rate. So it's like extreme Todd mm-hmm. Frazier that we are watching with Jose Abreu. Yeah. It's either popped up in the air or it's hit hard on the ground. And as a 35-year-old first baseman, that doesn't work. And Grandal, nothing. Mm-hmm. No power to speak of at all. And we, everyone, I'm sure the White Sox were counting on 50 home runs and like 180 RBIs from these two guys for the counting stats. And right now, Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal are not even on pace to hit 20 homers this season. 
Yeah, Grandal, it looks like his right-handed swing is behind his left-handed swing. Like his, his ability to really just, you know, the, the bat seems like it's snapping through the zone from the left side, but the right side seems like it's feeling, uh, you know, for kind of a contact for a line drive that isn't there. And I, I don't get why Reese McGuire has caught more innings behind the plate than Grandal. I understand like the whole knee thing, but it, it does negate the purpose of a Reese McGuire. Like the whole idea of Reese McGuire is like 40 decent games or 50 decent games or like, you know, what we talked about with Zach Collins and Sebi Zavala and so forth last year saying that just, they need somebody who can step in and provide a strength when Grandal is on the lineup. And McGuire does that with his receiving, with his throwing, his blocking, like he's a good defensive catcher. But when you see it over the course of a, you know, when he's getting more playing time behind the plates, like that makes him that puts him in the lineup for his bats. That effectively does that because he's in the lineup every day. And especially when you have a struggling lineup where you're looking from, uh, for offense from anybody, that does uh, heighten the emphasis on uh, what McGuire is doing or not doing. So all of a sudden it makes him one of the, uh, another one of the not bats when he wasn't supposed to be considered for his bat at all unless Grandal got hurt. And then you'd go to like AAA and bring up Carlos Perez or something like that who can, you know, maybe provide some contact from the right side and, and augment that. So it, it does seem to undermine the purpose of bringing McGuire in. As for Abreu, like, you know, I looked at the, you know, you know, the two numbers that jump out to me, one is the hard hit rate, but also, you know, kind of paired with the, the plummeting line drive rate. Uh, the other one is the walk rate, which is higher than usual. Uh, but, you know, the guy I always think about when it comes to like sudden walk rate surges towards the end of a, I would say in his mid-30s, was Jermaine Dye in his last season for the White Sox in 2009. Like, he had a great first half. I'm looking at his numbers right now. He had 942 OPS in the first half, 20 homers in 80 games, uh, 55 RBIs on pace for 40, 40 and 110. The power numbers, as Steve Stone would say. Second half, 590 OPS. Uh, his walk rate, though, surged. It went from like 9% to... 13%. In his final month, he drew 14 walks of 13 strikeouts over 21 games. Like he was walking a ton and he was never a guy who walked a ton. He was somebody who like trusted his bat and let his bat do most of the talking, but that walk rate surged out of nowhere. But watching him day in and day out, it's like, oh, he fouls a lot of pitches back. Like the pitches he should be driving, the, the, the mm-hmm. pitches where the at bat should be ending because the ball is in play or over the fence that doesn't happen anymore. So all of a sudden, like it just, the bats drag on and you know, he fouls off enough pitches to where like he draws a walk by mistake almost. And with Abreu, it's kind of the same thing. Like he's drawing more walks. Like he and Grandal have the double digit walk, the, the only double digit walk totals on the team. Uh, Abreu is not supposed to be there. And that's the one that, that scares me a little bit because like I'm watching him foul a lot of pitches back, mm-hmm. a lot of pop-ups to the right side. And that's just, that's late. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it's late on good velocity, which, you know, that happens. Uh, sometimes it's also late on like an 88 mile per hour cutter. Just the barrel's not anticipating, you know, where that handful of inches, where that ball is going to move to by the time it gets in his hitting zone. And so he jams it up or swinging under it and just the bat, the barrel is not on time. And sometimes that does not come back. That's why I always think of Jermaine Dye in 2009. Like he had that bad second half. Uh, some people attributed it to the White Sox bringing Alex Rios aboard and having some kind of uncertainty in terms of outfield playing time. But Dye's playing time was never touched. Like they made Rios play center. They they, they rotated him in and out. Like they preserved, yeah, Ozzie Guillen preserved Dye's playing time. And he just tailed off and he didn't get a job you know, to his liking. You know, some teams were, you know, wanted to give him $2 million to play DH and he just didn't want to do that. He wasn't interested. So he called it a career. And that's kind of where I'm thinking, you know, when I'm looking at a Bray right now is I don't, I think it's too soon to say he's done, but it's not too soon to start thinking about like, what if, uh, you know, what's, what's the contingency plan for this year? And I think they have a pretty good one, Andrew Vaughn. But, you know, just what's the contingency plan with, like, the emotional baggage? Yeah, that's, I think, the bigger question. Right. And that's where the optimistic White Sox fans are saying, well, just wait until Jose Abreu breaks out. The White Sox cannot wait until August Abreu to show up. They can't wait until August. They need Abreu to break out, like, now to help out the bullpen to give it a, a bigger margin of error for the White Sox Late in games. They need Abreu to start hitting right now. They need Yasmani Grandal to start hitting right now. And if these guys do not start hitting, 
You make a good point that the White Sox have Andrew Vaughn. And if Gavin Sheets has now found his power stroke, that helps. But circling back to the question of like, who do you put blame on? Are Rick Hahn and Tony La Russa ready to have that difficult midseason conversation with the Brayu that, Jose, you're going to be sitting more because we need the hot bats and you're not it. And Vaughn and Sheets are hitting. And we need more, we need more runs. So you are going to have to be the one sitting on the bench. Like, are the White Sox ready to have that conversation with Jose Abreu? You know, I'm hoping that as we're talking, I'm thinking like, I, I really hope this sounds bad in a week. Like that we're jumping the gun on this. <laughs> like part of me is like leaning into it because I want to look bad. Uh, I'd, I'd like for these uh, quotes to be uh, run back in my face and say like, haha, like a little bit of reverse jinx, but it is just, you know, looking at the visual cues on hand, they're not there. Um, you know, just for, you know, looking for what's going to uh, be the turnaround. Now, just a Braves had long enough history to where he looks terrible sometimes mm-hmm. for weeks and then eventually finds the key to get out of it. And so I'm not, it's not out of the question, but I think it's just the way he's looking now is the way some hitters do in their mid thirties, uh, you know, especially like say, you know, more athletically limited hitters who don't really have defensive skills to fall back upon. And, and Abreu's defense has also been pretty rough this season too. That kind of uh, point to some, you know, time setting in a little bit, but yeah, it's, you know, die was that, that season I was talking about was his age 35 season. Abreu is in his age 35 season. So, you know, you have to, I, I think at least when you're watching this, um, be prepared for having a difficult conversation. Right now, I think the White Sox have enough players not hitting to where they can still have a Abreu in the lineup most days and hope he catches you know, fire while waiting for anybody else to have a sustainable hot streak. But should, yeah, should Sheets prove that he can hit more than mistakes uh, and, and, and do damage on, on decent pitches and decent sequences? And, and Vaughn looks like he did before he got banged up? Like, yeah, that's a case where... Maybe it is, you know, time to, you know, rotate them in and out. Uh, And part of me wonders, you know, with Abreu kind of sounding, not having the same gung-ho attitude towards returning to the White Sox as he did his previous walk year when he said that, you know, I'm going to re-sign with the White Sox if they don't sign me. Like, I'm going to make it happen myself. Like, that he was more circumspect about it makes me wonder if he's had some feelings or some inclinations or just, uh, you know, some knowledge about, like, an uphill battle he's fighting to uh, stay at the top of his game. And maybe knows like, oh, maybe the white, he, he won't be able to give the White Sox that for that much longer. I hope he could turn it around. It's all about hand position right now. His hands are not out in front. And as you mentioned, Jim, he's behind on velocity. He's falling off a lot of pitches. We'll see. The White Sox need a Bray and Grandal to start hitting for power because they got four good hitters right now. And that is Anderson, Makata, Robert and Andrew Vaughn. And I think those four should be stacked in the lineup, one through four, and then everyone else. And Abreu and Grandal are still going to get at bats. Grandal is a better offensive player than Reese McGuire. He should be catching more. But if you're looking for a source of inspiration that things are going to turn around for the White Sox, they have to be better offensively. And it starts with Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal in my book. All right, that's enough dour for now. That's a lot of dour we just started with for this episode. Hopefully the White Sox next series is a successful one in Kansas City. They need it to be. And we'll preview it next after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Mike Rankin here, lead editor at FutureSox.com. And James Fox here, senior editor at FutureSox.com. We've got you covered on all things related to the White Sox minors and the MLB draft. James Fox works with our Mike Rankin. They do a great podcast together. It's really a highlight of my week to hear that on Tuesday. Thank you. Join us every Tuesday on the Future Sox podcast, wherever you get your podcast, part of the Blue Wire Network and SoxMachine.com. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, so after a dour, doom and gloom kind of outlook after the first 33 games for the White Sox, Let's look at this five-game series against the Kansas City Royals. That looked a lot scarier post-lockout when we looked at the schedule. We circled this series because it's a lot of games in a short time frame, especially with no planned days off for the White Sox into this upcoming Monday, in which they play five games in Kansas City in four days and then have to get back on the plane and fly to New York to face the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. This is a tough road trip for the White Sox. However... The Kansas City Royals are 12 and 20. They have one, their winning streak is just one game as they have lost six of their last 10 games. They have a negative 43 run differential. It is not paradise in Kansas City. They are off to a slow start. And there are some big questions being asked in Kansas City about the outlook for this season and the direction for the upcoming seasons for the Kansas City Royals. Did they hold on to Whit Merrifield? too long are they doing a good job at integrating the new talent along with the veteran talent do they have enough pitching to be able to have a more competitive season in 2022 there's a lot of questions in kansas city and things are not going so hot for the royals to start 2022 so if you're looking for the white Sox to have a quick turnaround here be a game or two above 500 this might be the series at Kauffman Stadium. And the probable pitchers for this series, Monday at 7, 10 p.m. Central Time, it is to be announced for the White Sox against Brad Keller, the Royals. The doubleheaders on Tuesday, starting at 1, 10 p.m. Central Time, it is to be announced versus to be announced. Game two of the doubleheader on Tuesday, 6, 10 p.m. Central Time. This is also our virtual watch party on playback that we'll be hosting along with our friends from the 108. It is... To be announced versus to be announced. Wednesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. We have Vince Velasquez for the White Sox against Zach Greinke. And Thursday, getaway day, 1.10 p.m. Central Time. Guess what? It's to be announced versus to be announced. All right, Jim. Neither team has their starting pitching in order uh, for these five games in four days. But the Chicago White Sox needed to make a decision with Johnny Cueto on Sunday, May 15th, we are expecting Cueto to make his first start with the White Sox in this series. Lucas Giolito was placed on the COVID-19 injured list, and the expectation is that he will return to the White Sox to pitch in this series. But with Johnny Cueto, is it Johnny Cueto time? And when do you think we could see Cueto make his start for the White Sox? Well, I think, you know, the, right now the plan is to have Dylan Cease pitch one of the doubleheader games, but I think they're waiting to see just exactly how Lucas Giolito is doing, whether he'll be back from his COVID stint. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of uncertainty there. And then, yeah, Cueto, when he'll be ready and such. But it does seem like Cueto will be necessary. Um, and I think that's fine. Like, I think we talked about it before that uh, Dallas Keuchel pitching better helps. Uh, um, you know, Vince Velasquez pitching a little worse or being exposed, I guess, by a good offense like the Yankees. The Royals do not have a good offense. Like, you know, perhaps he's still useful. It's not quite the back end of rotation crisis that we thought the White Sox had when uh, Cueto was signed, but he can still help. So I think he'll be added at some point for the series. Uh, you know, a corresponding roster move has to be made. So I imagine the White Sox are just trying to, you know, get a hold of the numbers. But yeah, I think, you know, right now, it, it Cueto just if he can get four innings you normally you know my I think my benchmark for you know pitchers making their debut in uncertain terms like his five innings I think for these circumstances like four would be fine uh just because 
right now, doubleheader and such, and the scares that we saw the White Sox have from Velasquez and Kopech in the Yankee series, and just thinking like, oh crap, there are nine, you know, eight innings to cover, or all of a sudden, like the uh, it's not even out of the second, and the bullpen's getting warm. Uh, that lowers my expectations for somebody like Cueto, who's coming in and not sure how his stuff is going to play against major league hitters in 2022 to four innings. That that's my hope there, but I think with uh, yeah, hopefully Giolito can come back. Cease makes one of the starts. Cueto's one of them. Uh, they should have enough pitching to match up well against an offense that's really struggling. What's fascinating too about the Royals to me is that like a lot of the criticisms that the White Sox have or White Sox fans have about their team, I'm seeing about the Royals, like whether it comes down to plate discipline or, you know, holding on to guys too long. Um, Carlos Santana, another one of those plate discipline cases where he's walking a ton. He's got 17 walks against 10 strikeouts in 21 games, but he's hitting 143. Like the at-bats just are not ending on balls in play on balls he should be damaging. Um, you know, we Dayton Moore in previous offseason said that the White Sox, uh, Royals needed to get more transactional, and they didn't do that. Uh, Mike Matheny was brought in uh, under questionable circumstances, given the way his tenure in St. Louis uh, ended, and he's not really rising to the occasion. So similar complaints and concerns, just with less talent, I think, is what we're seeing play out with Kansas City. Now, the Royals won two out of three in late April against the White Sox at guarantee rate field. I feel, Jim, the White Sox have to win this series. Now, it looks like the weather will hold off, that the White Sox will get all five games in. What are your expectations for the White Sox in this series, Jim? Yeah, I think, you know, series win would feel appropriate. Like, you know, given the circumstances, a doubleheader and such, that, you know, a sweep is... Uh, too much to ask, even like four out of five, you know, given the circumstances, given how one game, you know, like say if it's a rough game on Monday or a rough game in game one on Tuesday, that could compromise the way, you know, a sub, the next game is approached just in order to get by and preserve arms. Like that's a case where it's hard to say four, four wins are bust. But I think, you know, when you look at how they lost the first series, their uh, lackluster record against AL Central opponents that losing further ground against a team that is not playing well, uh, does not, uh, you know, another unflattering snapshot. It's like, you you can talk about in terms of like, you can't judge any team from one series. You can't use anything as a measuring stick, but if you keep getting snapshots and they're all bad, you have to look at the camera or something and say like, you know, what's, is this thing busted? You know, like (laughs) we're getting all uh, ugly photos, like, yeah, uh, everything's blurry and, and, uh, the exposure is all off. Like, uh, this is really just not great. So that's why I think, you know, a, a series victory of any kind uh, would be welcome and take some of the heat off just because this is a grind. It's eight games in seven days. Sandwiched between series against the Yankees. There is some uh, licking of wounds and trying to restore some arms uh, before another tough opponent. So uh, there will have to be that balance of short-term view and long view. But as we talked about with the the lack of blowout wins, like having one would be great. Having one that makes the Royals feel bad about themselves, I think would be uh, just a sign that something is, uh, is changing for the better with this offense. And I think that blowout win needs to happen on Monday, right? Because it's going to be a long day on Tuesday, a very long day on Tuesday for the White Sox. And I'm sure they're going to be calling up an extra pitcher as for the extra guy, uh, for those two games on Tuesday, and that extra pitcher is going to probably have to throw for the White Sox on Tuesday. They they have to win this series, Jim. They got to win at least three out of five against the Royals. Because if they lose this series against Kansas City, I mean, we are we could be talking about a White Sox team that's 6-13 and 13 against the American League Central if they lose this series to start the season. Mm-hmm. Like, that's unfathomable for me to, to say they have twice as many losses against their division opponents than wins. And when your record is below 500, and what many people think in Major League Baseball is the weakest division of all six divisions, and you don't have a winning record, well, that's step one. You got to fix your problems against division opponents if you want anyone to take you seriously as either a playoff contender or a World Series contender. So the White Sox, in my view, they got to win this series. They have to win this series. And 
this may be one of the occasions where they could pull off a five-game sweep. I think with the way that the Royals have been playing as of late, I still think the White Sox are more talented, but I also thought the White Sox had a chance to sweep the Royals in late April at home, and they lost that series two out of three, Jim. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of this series other than the White Sox need to have this series. They, They need to win this series, and if we do see Johnny Cueto, I am hoping that he is effective and puts a team in a position to win and the bullpen gets some uh, easy nights this series. So hopefully, fingers crossed, everything goes well for the Chicago White Sox at Kansas City. And of course, we'll recap that series on Sox Machine Live uh, this upcoming Thursday night. But you guys had some questions for us and we'll answer them next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our Patreon supporters, get to ask the questions. And if you would like to submit a question or topic for a future Sox Machine podcast, you can sign up to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Machine. And the first Patreon question that we got, Jim comes from Steve Griffin and Steve wrote to us is there a reality where things are bad enough that the White Sox have to sell at the deadline if so who goes Adam Engel AJ Pollock Josh Harrison Reese McGuire Jose Abreu I can see yeah perhaps there's a case where they do uh, I'm thinking like the twins where there's all of a sudden everything kind of falls through the floorboards and now they're just kind of looking to see like scrap the team for parts basically is what the question's kind of getting at. And I could see that. I think, you know, maybe more likely is a case where the White Sox maybe make a trade that's surprising because of what we talked about over the off season, that the team has some pileups in certain parts of their roster and certain areas where, um, you know, just they, you know, have too many guys who take too many swings hit too many ground balls, but you know, some other team might love to get their hands on, you know, the, the trades I brought up before, like t- thinking about like Brian Reynolds for, uh, uh, you know, Eloy Jimenez or Andrew Vaughn, like you know, the, those kind of trades. Like I could see something like that just because last winter or sorry, last, uh, deadline, we didn't see Nick Madrigal being traded and he got dealt. Um, part of that was because he was hurt, but we saw that the, you know, Rick Hahn does have the appetite to say like, this isn't working for one player or seeing diminishing returns uh, and Madrigal's, you know, having a rough start to his Cubs career. And I think his, he had back issues he on the injured list or he was placed on the injured list. Okay. Yeah. So he's had another injury come up that that's, that's costing him time. So that's a case where he did, I think, look at a player who he previously valued and said, um, you know, he kind of had an honest assessment and said like, he might not be able to help us. We might need to trade him now because uh, one more injury and that value plummets further and maybe we can replace this and right now the White Sox have not replaced it but also Madrigal has not really you know replaced himself yet when looking at what he's done with the Cubs but I could see him making another sober assessment of a of player or two um, just to try to diversify the roster as we talked about like you know, the other one the one trade I'm thinking about like I think maybe the quintessential Example of that kind of deal is in uh, with the Red Sox, Theo Epstein trading Nomar Garcia Parra for Orlando Cabrera and just being like a, you know, that, that, that deal that just, you know, you sent out Nomar, why? And just like, well, just the defense wasn't good. Like things weren't fitting, have enough offense, just need some, you know, Cabrera is a, a decent offensive player, but it has a really good glove. And that's just something we need. Like things aren't fitting and it was a shock, but it actually worked out pretty well for them. Um, uh, and yeah, it wasn't necessarily the reason why they won. It was a good team in uh, in spite of it. But it's just, you know, they kind of trade where uh, it was a shocker just because uh, Nomar meant so much for the culture. And, uh, you know, it, it took some guts to get it done, but it got done. Like, and uh, I'm looking at that deal now that was in 2004 at the deadline. Yeah, Garcia Parra went to the Cubs, three-way deal. Uh, you know, and then yeah, Cabrera went to the Red Sox and Cabrera was fine. Like I'm looking at his numbers, the Red Sox, 294, 320, 465 slugging hit for a bit more power than expected, but was a league average offensive contributor who played well defensively and yeah, uh, played half a season at one point. So he was like a three to four win player over the course of a full season for the Red Sox based on what he gave him. But it just happened to be the right move for 
that team um, at, based on the way other parts fit. And I could see, you know, we, we talked about, you know, whether it's Jimenez, Vaughn. Yeah, I think Vaughn's now proven himself to be uh, too valuable, especially with the way Abreu is going. <laughs> I think uh, Vaughn's time is coming for a dedicated roster spot, maybe as natural position. But, you know, whether it's Sheets, uh, lacking athleticism in a corner and, and DH being clogged up, or I could just see some move being made that all of a sudden, you know, uh, a guy you thought was untouchable or part of the core moves just in order to uh, make the roster more of a, a threat and more uh, more formidable against teams with strong pitching. And and that's why yeah, I thought it could happen over the course of the winter. And uh, it didn't get done. But now I think, you know, if we see these returns uh, continue into June and the White Sox are hovering around 500 or keeping the Twins in it, I could see a similar move. Just try to be made to shake it up. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Steve, if the White Sox are like three games below 500 and they're seven to 10 games behind the Minnesota Twins or the Cleveland Guardians for first place, is the trade deadline nears? I I could see Jose Abreu dealt. I don't know about AJ Pollock. Maybe Pollock because he does have the player opt out coming up after the season in which he's owed $5 million if he opts out. That's something that would have to be negotiated if the White Sox were to trade A.J. Pollock. But if it gets that bad, <laughs> Steve, where the White Sox are in a terrible position in late July, which we're still a couple months away, those are the two that I'm looking at right now that are that would be moved. Yeah. Would be Abreu and Pollock. Yeah, maybe, you know, depending on how well Keuchel's pitching, if it were truly a, a selling for parts situation, Keuchel might have more value elsewhere than he does have to the White Sox. Like a case like, you know, I would say if you're starting the next rebuild, you'd start bringing like a guy like Lucas Giolito into it, given that he's under limited team control. But I don't think they would go that deep. I think it'd be more of a matter of just trying to get value for the guys who aren't coming back and then trying to reshape the team more dramatically over the course of the winter. Well, the Twins traded Jose Breos last year, so never say never. Yeah. But I highly doubt it. But, yeah, if things get bad, Steve. But we've been pretty dour on this episode already, so let's not think uh, how bad it has to be for the White Sox to trade the trade away players before the deadline. But those are the two players I would look at, Steve, is uh, Jose Breu and AJ Pollock, the pending free agents. But Steve, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Brian. And Brian wrote to us, what's a guy got to do around here to get a normal freaking baseball team? I know franchises go through ups and downs, but it seems like we have been forever stuck in a damn twilight zone with these guys. Well, you know, I, I think it's a reflection of leadership slash ownership. Just, you know, when we, the, the thing I keep coming back to is that the White Sox managerial decisions when they looked to hire a manager have worked out as well as they deserved. Like Ozzie Guillen was an inspired choice to manage a team, like maybe a little bit of a, you know, too close to the White Sox, but he did, you know, leave the team. He did get experience elsewhere under accomplished managers and, and learned how to uh, just, you know, various roles in a non-uniformed or, or he was in a uniform, but non-playing position where he had to make decisions for other players. Like he got training. Uh, and he had a, a certain, you know, uh, je ne sais quoi when it came to his, his leadership abilities <laughs> to where just like it was worth a shot. It was an inspired choice, uh, some risk involved, but um, you could see the potential and it worked out beautifully until it didn't. But there was, you know, it, it did have you know, a, a few really good years. Then Robin Ventura, they really put little work into that or just, you know, played a hunch and that didn't work out. Yeah, you know, that 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 smoldered and especially like I would say the end of the Ozzygian tenure where they just you know avoided the hard decision of the conflict between Williams and Gian and just uh, tried to get through it all the way without making any difficult decisions and that and then that you basically undermine the team that way that worked out as well as it deserved to Robin Ventura worked out as well as it deserved to just based on the lack of thought Rick Renteria conversely worked out as well as it deserved to in a positive way. Like they kind of settled for him, but they also brought him on in an external search. Like they got rid of Robin Ventura's guy with Mark Parent and actually searched for a credible coach. And Renteria is a credible coach. And when he was tasked with leading a rebuild, he was a credible guy for that. And I think we saw his value during the rebuild years. So that worked out as well as it deserved to. It lacked the upside for him to survive a rebuild, but 
it worked. And now we're seeing with Tony La Russa, we still don't exactly know how well it's supposed to work, but if it were to be a disappointment, you don't understand why. Like they just keep avoiding a normal process, a healthy process to uh, interview external candidates, learn what other successful organizations are doing and try to integrate that in their organization. Like they just resist that, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, at the general manager level, the vice president level or the ownership level, like whenever somebody has the idea to do it and that idea doesn't come naturally, somebody else gets in the way. <laughs> I think that's just, uh, that, that's why we're in this perpetual, um, inability to move on. And that's why, you know, like, I know a lot of people enjoy having Ozzy Gann in the, in the post-game show and like having around and we see the reception he gets, but it just strikes me as like, as long as the White Sox are in this weird position of just not being entirely normal, it just like, it seems like he shouldn't be able to come back in a team role until like, you know, the damage from like the end of the, you know, that tenure where everything fell apart and the cold war happened and just, uh, you know, the a normal manager hasn't been hired in his stead. Like, I just, you know, it makes me uncomfortable seeing him there just because like, he's just, you know, why he's hanging around is reflective of how weird, uh, this leadership structure is. And I think as long as it's going to be weird, it's going to be hard for this team to feel like it's really, um, normal or progressive, productive, whatever you want to call it. Well, we were going to see changes during the rebuild, Jim. And we kind of did, but just the big, the big picture elements the i guess the culture stuff is still quite there well brian thank you so much for your question and thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for po socks again if you would like to submit a questions to us uh for po socks you can sign up to become a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash socks machine where our patreon supporters they get more. They get exclusive content from us, like the 2022 Major League Baseball draft reports. And they also get bonus P.O. Sox questions that we answer. Jim and I answer a lot more questions for P.O. Sox uh, than the other version of the episode. Our Patreon supporters get ad-free versions of the podcast and website, and they get ex- they also get the first opportunity to purchase our new Sox Machine swag. So if you enjoy our work and you want more, Go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up. Monthly plans start at $2 and you can save with an annual subscription. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Another PSA, there's going to be an update for the upcoming road takeover in Minneapolis in mid-July. So for those that have signed up to receive communications for that particular trip, you'll be receiving an email from me shortly as far as what the plan is for a pregame, as we finally do have a pregame destination, it will require tickets to purchase. So there'll be more details to come on SoxMachine.com as there'll be a new events page available on the website. So keep an eye on that. And again, we'll be tweeting it out and writing posts on SoxMachine.com. And for those that have signed up to receive email communications, you will be hearing from me shortly. If you would like to receive email communications within the podcast page of this episode, at SoxMachine.com. There will be a Google form. You can sign up there to receive communications and be in the know if you live or will be visiting Minneapolis for the White Sox Twin Series on July 15th or 16th in a couple of months. And again, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. If you just discovered us, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Machine and subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts as the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.